Okay, so I don't know most of you, but a lot more of you know me than in return. Um, but for those who don't know, um, I have been working in Mali for the last two years, and my father, the pastor, has asked me to share just a, a little taste of that. Um, I'll talk more Wednesday. Um, be a little confused, though, because he asked me to talk about Mali, and I'm actually going to start off with a little Greek story real quick. Um, if you spend any time with me, you'll realize this is to be expected, so fair warning. Um, but I don't know how many of you are too familiar with this story, um, but the Greeks have the story of Jason and the Argonauts, and it's these group of Greek explorers, and they are going on a journey by sea to a place called Colchis in what's now Georgia, not our Georgia, the other one, um, didn't go to America. Um, but on the way, they, they face some problems, some obstacles in their path. And among them is a certain entity called the Sirens. And the Sirens are a group of beings. They live out on the water um, that appear like women. And they sing the most elegant, the most beautiful, the most enticing songs ever. So enticing, in fact, that just to hear the song spells certain doom for you because you can't control your urges and you go out and run after them only to be taken up and eaten. Um, so the problem rises, right? How do we get past this insurmountable obstacle? How can we resist the temptation to go to our impending doom? And one of the men on the, on the ship, Orpheus, he has a solution. He takes up his, his lyre and he, he plays on it a bit and he starts to sing. And ultimately, what he does is he sings a sweeter song than any that the sirens could conjure. He sings a, a sweeter song, one that is so sweet that you feel no need to run after these foolish, these silly, these sometimes dangerous temptations, right? Back to Molly, okay? Put a pin in that for now. So these last two years in Mali, I work-wise, I've had two main responsibilities. One, learn the Bambara language, um, and two, uh, teach English to a lot of the local students in our town who are interested in learning. Some do it for work, because learning English can be pretty useful if you want to climb the work ladder. Um, others because they just want something to do because their schools are always on strike and they, they want to do something with their minds, right? Um, but whatever the reason, um, we've met with students day by day for the better part of two years, either learning their language or teaching them my own. And in that time, we looked for opportunities to share, to talk with each other, to build relationships and if you've been to Mali um, you will know that the people there are very warm they're very open and happy to talk this is a country that is 90 to 95 percent Muslim right Christianity is a very tiny minority there and a lot of people aren't too familiar with the message that we teach the hope that we have most of what they know is whatever misconceptions their imam has. And 
And so we talk about these things a lot about our faith because they want to know. They have questions, right? Now they finally have a Christian here, and they want to poke your mind a bit. And over the course of these two years, I go and we visit with people. We build friendships. We connect. We share. And we talk about all sorts of things, right? Um, like, how do, you, how do you pray? <laughs> or what do you think about this hot topic of the week? And in these moments, we use, I use my platform, right, as, as a teacher, as a learner, to get into these people's lives, to get into their homes, to meet with them day after day, um, to go with them to the market, to help them replace an old gas can, to uh, go visit their, their friend who wants to meet a white person <laughs> um, just, and spend the late hours of the night sitting and drinking tea, um, shooting the breeze, and dancing to Michael Jackson for some reason because my neighbors love him, <laughs> and finding all of these um, opportunities to be with, to enjoy their company, and to speak that hope into them. Uh, because for those of you who don't know, Molly is kind of a difficult situation. Uh, not for me as a foreign worker coming in, um, because you can basically wear your Christianity on your shoulder and let everyone know it, and there aren't legal repercussions for it. But the country itself has had a lot of issues. I mean, there was a coup in 2012, open rebellion, Al-Qaeda, all that not-so-fun stuff. And the country itself is racked by so many problems of poverty, um, a completely broken education system, not to mention a climate which, in the hot stretches of the year, can be almost unbearable and makes it nearly impossible to work. That is, assuming you can even find a job to begin with because most people are desperate for money. Um, and as you get to, and as you sit and you be around people for a long time, right, you know this here. You, you get down to the deeper stuff. You see what makes them tick, what their heart breaks for, right? And in the midst of that, I think what we all would like to do, or hopefully to do, is to sing that sweeter song that we all know and that we're all familiar with because you're here today, right? Um, looking for those opportunities to speak that love and that truth and that hope uh, into their lives. Um, and that jiggy, that's your first Bambara word there, jiggy, that's hope. Um, and being with those people, speaking that, sharing the truth, um, knowing that whether they say yes or no on the spot, that they carry that with them. And they think about that. I know it. I've been here for a few weeks now, and I, they're still messaging me on WhatsApp. So, um, so those conversations are still ongoing. Um, but I'm going to talk in a bit more detail uh, on Wednesday night, but I thought I'd give just a, a little taste of it right now. Um, so, thank you.
He's fascinating. The way that your mind works to me is just an absolutely beautiful thing. And the connection that you can make about sharing the hope of Jesus Christ. I hope and I pray that we would all value those relation-building opportunities that we all have in our lives. And, And even now, it's like chaos is all around us. And I just want you to know that in the midst of it all, God's sovereign. He will rule and reign over his people. And, and, and no virus is going to affect that or alter that. So, so be at peace. Let's take your Bibles. Let's open them up to the book of Amos. Amos chapter 6, 823 on, on your pew Bible. Amos chapter 6. As you're turning there, just a reminder, yes, Wednesday night prayer and praise will happen, 6.30, meals will not happen. Um, XYZ, no function on Thursday. We'll keep you updated with any changes. Uh, we ask that your offerings and your prayer cards go in the pots at the back of the service. Uh, visitors, uh, we'd still love to be able to connect with you uh, this next week. And there's a green card that looks uh, like exactly like this in the pew right in front of you. We ask that you take the time to fill that out. And at the end of the service, if you'll bring it back to us at the back of the church, we have a gift for you. Uh, we have uh, toilet paper and hand sanitizer to give to you. <laughs> Actually, it would have been a really good gift to give today. But not today. We got something else to give you. We'd love to be able to, to share that with you. I uh, hope you have your Bibles open. This morning, we're going to wrap up chapter 6. We're going to look at two more warning statements that Amos has for the people of God. We're going to look at the warning to the indulgent in verses 4 through 7, and then the warning to the impudent in verses 8 through 14. So with that being said, um, let's begin with verse number 4. It says, Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from their flock, and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp, and like David have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls, while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawlers banqueting will pass away. Now, let me just tell you that, looking at verse number 5 and and verse number 6, let me just say that there's absolutely nothing wrong with our enjoyment of food or the enjoyment of of good music, provided that the things of the Lord are of the utmost in our hearts and lives. And so David designed and he made musical instruments himself, and you can read that in 1 Chronicles chapter 23. So he he designs and he makes musical instruments himself, but he uses them to the praise of our Lord. And and in the scriptures, you can see how, like Abraham, he would have this big, elaborate feast, and God never condemned that because his heart was there to, to praise the Lord in the midst of it all. But Contrary to Abraham, or contrary to David, uh, the people of Amos that he was addressing, well, well, they had all these luxuries, and these luxuries were distracting them from the real problems of the nation. 
Verse number 6 says that they had not grieved over the ruin of Joseph or the ruin of Samaria. In other words, this was a, this was a nation that was pleasure-hungry. They were driven by their selfish desires. And any nation that's turned over to pleasure-seeking as its utmost of uh, attention that gets in their lives and the, the hearts of the nation is one that's bound to to be destroyed or, or to decay because you can't chase after the pleasures of this world and continually find success or peace or happiness in any of it. One of the marks that the end days are at hand says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 4, is that we will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. No wonder Jesus warns us in Luke chapter 21 to be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with uh, dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of the life. And, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. And in Luke 21 verse 36, it tells us to keep on the Lord at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. I think it's incredibly sad is the fact that it is extremely difficult to find people who are truly burdened over the nation's sins or over the the sins of the church. What's extremely sad and, and heartbreaking is honestly to find people today who are desensitized to the sin that's even in their own lives. Too many professing believers are like the the leaders in Samaria who are closing their eyes to reality and they're chasing after some false ideology that's based upon their false theology. I mean, how many of us can honestly say like the psalmist and And Jeff read it just a few moments ago in Psalm 119 and verse number 53. The psalmist says, Burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. If you read further in Psalm 119, when you get to verse 136, it says, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. How long has it been since you've been just burdened and broken over the sins of our nation, or the sins within the church, within our community? Let's be honest, too many of us are laughing at sin when we ought to be weeping over it. And too many of us are tolerating sin when we ought to be opposing it. We've become way too comfortable with the presence of sin in our lives and it's time for the church to wake up to wake up and to stand on the truth of god's word in fact in first corinthians chapter 5 it says it is actually reported that there is immorality among you an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the gentiles that someone has his father's wife you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul's addressing the church, and they have 
known sin in their presence and the practice, the habitual gross sin habit of this individual and they're not they're not addressing it they're not calling attention to it they're not speaking out against it they're welcoming it they're receiving it into their fellowship and paul's writing to correct them in that and he goes down to verse number nine and says i wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people i do not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous, or the swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of this world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have for, with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourself. Man, this, this reality is so foreign to us today. Where, where it says, look, why do you receive rebellious, sinful lifestyles into your fellowship without addressing it, without talking about it, without, without calling a person... To, to give an account or to give a, a reason for, for the lifestyle in which they've embraced. We're too worried about offending people. We're too worried about, you know, judge not lest ye be judged without fully understanding what God's whole counsel has to say to us. And no, we don't judge those who are outside the church. They're lost. Their hearts are depraved. Of course they're going to do wicked and vile things. That's up for God to handle that. But for the professing believer who has sin evident in their life, there's a call for the church to step in and to engage in a conversation to bring awareness of that sin and hopefully to lead that person to a place of repentance so that they confess that sin and turn from that sin and continue to thrive in Christ-like growth and maturation. But we have a fear that says, well, we're not supposed to say anything or do anything. And God's Word says... But those who are on the outside, God judges, remove the wicked person from among yourself. That's hard. That's, 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 that's strong. Which means, in order to do so appropriately, as Jesus instructs us to, that we have to make sure that we're living right and doing right. Because we can't dare approach someone to try to address their sin when we have unconfessed and unrepented sin of our own. So, so we've got to be honest with who we are, and we've got to be honest with each other. And we have to be loving enough to be able to talk to someone about the concern of sin in their lives. I mean, wouldn't it be nice that if we could just love each other enough and trust each other so that we would welcome those difficult conversations into our lives. And not only would we welcome it into our own lives, that we would be willing to engage in those conversations when necessary. Man, if we would just love each other and trust each other. But trust is such a, it's a weird thing because it's almost like we don't trust anyone or anything anymore. I mean, I don't know where you're at with this whole coronavirus stuff and all that, but, you know, figure it out. Right? But wouldn't it be nice if that we could actually feel like we could trust the politicians and what they're telling us? Wouldn't it be nice if we could actually trust the news media as they're reporting on these things? I mean, my fear is that there's this, there's this 
serious thing that's on the horizon, but it's like the boy who cried wolf and nobody's going to respond and nobody's going to do anything because who can trust anyone these days? That's outside. But shouldn't we be able to trust one another here? Shouldn't we be able to love one another enough to hold one another accountable? And the vast majority of the people that Amos was addressing are simply ignoring God's holy word and living in outright rebellion towards him. And God warns them that his judgment is going to fall upon them. They're guilty of many things. He lists four disgraceful behaviors in that section that I just read. Real fast, they were guilty of living in extravagance and excess without attending to the needs of others. Uh, They're guilty of living a selfish life. That's verse number five. Verse number six, they're guilty of drunkenness. Notice how, how, how heavily the people were drinking. They're drinking out of bowls instead of glasses. I mean, there's so much excess drinking that glasses wouldn't even satisfy. They're, they're, doing, they're, they're consuming the alcohol from, from bowls instead. The people were guilty, the last part of verse number six, of focusing on their own comfort, their own beauty. They're, they're focused on themselves and not of the Lord or on the needs of other people. So in summary, the the people of Amos' day were pleasure-hungry and extremely indulgent. They weren't seeking after the Lord, nor were they seeking to take care of one another. Scripture tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, it says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Then Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Uh, one more in Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungodly, unholy, ungrateful, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I mean, I'm not trying to be funny, but that sounds like too many people in church. It goes on to say, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Let me be clear, in these first few verses of this section, I think what Amos is trying to say from our Lord is that anyone 
who indulges in, in, in an extravagant lifestyle while neglecting, you hear the phrase, I'm not saying having nice things is wrong. I'm not saying that. If you're indulging in an extravagant lifestyle while neglecting the Lord and while neglecting the needs of other people, I think they too will face the judgment of God. And so Amos gives his, his warning to the indulgent, and then he goes into his fourth and final warning, and that is to the impudent. And so look at verse number 8. It says, The Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up this city and all it contains. Now, now, now the people boasted of their fortresses. They boasted of their mansions, and they boasted of their elegant and extravagant way of living, all of which God abhorred. It, he detested it all, and he would ultimately going to destroy it. And people who seek to live their lives without God, living their lives without God, in fact, their God would be their own personal pleasure. I think they too will hear one day the Lord call unto them and say, Fool, this night the Lord has required your soul from you. Jesus gives us that insight. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Hear what the Lord has to say in this parable of the rich fool. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse number 13, it says that someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul? You have many good things laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Understand that here these impudent people were rejecting God's warning to, to repent and to live righteously in the land. And because they were rejecting the, the warning of God and they're so focused on the pleasures of this world, then ultimately God was going to bring his judgment upon the people. And his judgment was going to come in, in, in a variety of different ways. And I'll unpack those with you right now. Look at verse number 9. It says, verse number 9 says, and it, it will be if 10 men are left in one house, uh, they will die. Then one's uncle or his undertaker 
will lift him up to carry out his bones from their house. And he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, is anyone else with you? And that one will say, no one. Then he will answer, keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. One of the judgments that was going to fall upon the people was the judgment of death. And so here the scene is if a, if a relative uh, came to, to burn the bodies of the one who has deceased, and, and that was the safest thing to do if disease was running rampant within a community. And so what's happening is if a relative came to burn the deceased body, and anyone in the house who was guarding the body would deny that there were others in the house with them, lest they catch this plague and die for themselves in fact the disposal of these dead bodies would no longer be a religious occasion because nobody would mention the name of the lord because they were fearful of what might happen to them and so death was part of their judgment but not only death it would be death and destruction because it continues verse number 11 says for behold the Lord is going to command that a great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to fragments. Do horses run on rocks or does one plow them with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar and say, have we not by our own strength taken carnium for ourselves? Let me just say in this section, uh, the, the thought that always comes to me in reading it is the reality that pride always comes before destruction. In fact, that's what Scripture tells us in Proverbs chapter 16, verse number 18. It says, pride goes before destruction, uh, a haughty spirit before stumbling or before a fall. So the prophet is arguing from his point, from, a from, a, from an order of nature here. Notice how he uses a horse to, to drive home what he's trying to say. Uh, go back and look at verse number 12. It says, do horses run on rocks or does one plow them with oxen? No, horses don't run on rocks. They're not going to. They'll slip and they'll fall. No, farmers aren't going to plow on the rocks with their oxen. They're, they've got a little bit of common sense and don't forget, Amos was a farmer himself, right? He's trying to make an obvious connection. No, that's not what's going to happen. That's not what we're supposed to do. So common sense convinces us of the truth of this statement, and yet here the people were oblivious to their sin. They ignored all the warnings that were coming to them. They, they were so desensitized to the truth that when someone spoke to them a message of truth, then they didn't respond. They didn't have a heart for it. They didn't have a desire for it. They didn't have a hunger for it. They, them being obedient to the truth would require that they'd have to alter who they were and what they were doing, and they enjoyed that too much that they couldn't hear the truth when the truth was spoken to them. Their pride prevented them from seeing the depths of their sin. Back in verse number 13, it says, You who rejoice in Lodabar and say, Have we not by our own strength taken carnium for ourselves? 
these are two cities that were captured by them. I'm not sure when Israel captured these cities, and the date is not really important. What is important is how proud they were of their achievement, how confident they were that no one else could defeat them. Their arrogance is overflowing here. What I love about it is the name Lodabar means, it means absolutely nothing. That's what it means. Nothing. And so that's what God thought of their accomplishment. God wasn't impressed by that. He wasn't, you know, wooed by, by their military strength or their past conquest. It meant absolutely nothing to him. Oh, they can boast in their victories. They can boast in their own strength. But that was ultimately just false confidence. False confidence that would ultimately lead them to their own destruction. So the people were going to face death. They were going to face destruction. And then ultimately they would also face disgrace and defeat. Verse number 14. It says, For behold, I'm going to rise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts. And they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Verse 14 starts the same way as verse number 11, where it says, for behold. This phrase emphasizes the certainty of the action that's going to come from God. God has already chosen another nation who is going to be victorious over Israel. Israel had not taken God seriously. They ignored the many warnings given to them by the prophets. Their pride and what they considered to be their own accomplishments, their refusal to practice righteousness and justice, and their growing apostasy all led to their downfall. Proverbs 14, verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation. I believe that this is still true today. And sadly, many of our leaders are, are living their lives as though they're the masters of their own domain, that they can control the ultimate outcome of who we are. God's word says righteousness exalts a nation. That's sink in for a moment. The hope of our nation is for the people of God to bend their knee, confess their sins, repent, and seek to honor God in everything that we do and all that we say. It is not going to be found through a political process. It won't happen. We need to be honest. We need to grieve. I mean, we read it earlier. When have you mourned over the sins of our nation? When have you mourned over the sins in our community? When have streams of water flowed from our eyes because of our rebellious attitude and our hatred that's displayed to our loving God? 
When have we been broken by that? Why is it that we tend to just live defeated? Like, like there's no hope. Nothing's ever going to change. Why do, we, why, do we, why do we live that way? We believe that God can cause revival to break forth at any moment. Do you? Do you realize that revival doesn't start from outside the church? It starts from in the church? Why do we get so frustrated that lost people are doing stupid things in their lives when we ought to be frustrated on how found people continue to do stupid things with their lives? Man, wouldn't it be great to see our own community rally around the cross of Christ? Wouldn't it be great to, to fill this place up week after week with people who can't wait to come and to celebrate and to sing praises unto the Father of fathers? But when are we going to be broken? What is it going to take? Is it going to be a virus that wakes up the church? Maybe. I don't know. Be very careful of who you're listening to in these days. There are some crazy people who are saying some crazy stuff right now. Double check it with the Word of God. All right? Don't get sucked into this. Right? Don't, don't buy into their lies. Don't buy into their greed. Double check it all with the Word of God. Right? God's not surprised by, over, by any of this. God is sovereign in and through it all. He knows what's going to happen. He's no, he knows how it's going to happen. Don't lose your hope. Don't get discouraged. Don't be frustrated. Put your faith and trust, not in our government, not in uh, any organization. Put your faith and trust in him. In him. And live at peace. And while living at peace in him, listen to the advice of those that have some medical knowledge wash your hands you sinners that's good stuff it is wise for us to do but according to God's word wash your hands purify your heart it's a call to repentance may each and every one of us use moments like this Anytime we get together to allow his word to hold it up as a mirror so that we can see a reflection of who we are. And may his word bring correction into our lives where necessary. And may his word bring great encouragement in 